Coming to you from the great wide north, it's your weekly dose of sports news, thoughts, and more. Two guys, one act, and all of the sports, it's the Halftime Brewskies Podcast. No, 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 that's unbelievable. You're kidding me. Dude, that is ridiculous. Really? That's what you think? No, no, no. Hello, folks. Welcome into this very special episode of the Halftime Brewskies podcast, because that's right. Those beats you're hearing as we come on the air is our very own intro song. Latin music might not seem like a regular start to a sports podcast, but you cannot deny you are buzzing right now. It gets the blood going. Feels like you're on a beach instead of trapped under the snow. So close your eyes, crack that coconut and sip your margarita as we talk sports, sports, sports. <laughs> that intro sounded so much worse in my head, and it actually proved no, that it was. Me. It sounded worse than you think it did. <laughs> it did. It did, but that's the world we live in. So we are going to start off with hockey, and we wanted to get out the first, the first thing we really want to talk about was a massive congratulations for the world's longest hockey game that just took place in Alberta. It smashed records. 40 different people played on an outdoor rink for 252 hours straight near Edmonton. 252 hours. They played seven days a week since February 4th, and they battled record cold temperatures this year. The mercury dropped to between negative 40 and negative 55 with the wind chill times it was so cold that pucks were shattering as players passed along the boards skate blades broke in half pieces of mask of the goalie masks fell off as the glue let go and goalie pads cracked i can report that the final score was 2649 to 2528 so team hope won it was all in the process of raising money for cancer research at the University of Alberta, and they raised $1.8 million. So a massive hats off, congratulations, round of applause to all of those people taking part. And now onto some far less important hockey games, which is the NHL North Division, producing two almost identical games yesterday between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Ottawa Senators and the Winnipeg Jets and the Edmonton Oilers. Toronto gave up a 5-1 lead winnipeg almost blew a 4-1 lead they both capitulated in the same kind of way but at least the jets got the goal to win the game whereas toronto lost james i know you didn't watch the winnipeg game but of the toronto game what did you make of the toronto game and how they played oh boy like that that game was so indicative of like a like last season for the toronto maple leafs and just the inconsistency that 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 team kind of had when you look at how well they played for, you know, the first, uh, not even 40 minutes, but the first kind of 35 minutes of the game, I mean, they were dominating Ottawa, dominating, and yeah. giving Ottawa kind of no room to breathe. They kind of controlled the play, and they were kind of having their way in front of the net. And then it was that one goal by uh, by Nick Paul that just it was it was that lazy play that kind of just almost was what was was what changed everything in the game because it was that complacency that almost the team they giving up a shorthanded goal and that complacency of doing it yeah was what kind of took all the air out of the tires and it was from that point that Ottawa was was then able to kind of build on the momentum going into the third so from it was the best of the least for the first 35 minutes and then the absolute worst because they just became a team that didn't focus on any of the details and allowed Ottawa to kind of claw their way back in. And like in no way was anyone expecting the Leafs to give up that big of a lead and mm-hmm. still lose the game. And I think yeah. that's what's so surprising is the fact that there was no kind of pushback at, like when you think that okay it's it's five two now now it's five three at what point would did someone on the bench not be like we can't allow another goal yeah i yeah but exactly. that never happened i don't i don't know why i mean i think you're definitely right in the at least the first 30 35 minutes of the game like the leafs were buzzing they were 
playing quickly. They were controlling the puck. The Matthews line was on fire. And then I have two turning points. And well, I, I guess technically three. One of them is uh, the manner in which Tavares turned over the puck for, I think it was Ottawa's second goal, where they, like, he just kind of a weak, lazy play and he just kind of played it in and it led to. Um, yeah, the shorthanded goal. Yeah, it just, it just, like, that was just lazy. But, you know, whatever. That's, you can kind of, you can't excuse that from someone like Tavares or the captain of the team, but. It wasn't the end of the game because, you know, then you think, oh, well, maybe the Leafs will win 7-2. My, my more kind of discerning turning point was Brady Kachuk in front of the net wrestling with Anderson and then fighting Muzzin, which, although didn't seem like a lot, I think Anderson is one of the, you know, quote-unquote, most rattleable goalies in the NHL. Like, he did, Kachuk did exactly what you need to do to Anderson, which is kind of get under his skin a bit, knock him from his game. And then from, I think from that point on, Anderson just looked shaky. The defense looked shaky. And you suddenly start giving up goals. You give up a breakaway because you're not paying attention. Someone coming out of the box. Like there are so many issues that weren't happening until that point where the defense got flustered, Anderson got flustered and the Leafs just didn't, hit pause and say what the fuck are we doing yeah i don't think uh the muslim family will be sending the kachuk family any christmas cards next year for sure i don't know those brothers like him no yeah usually it, it was so surprising to see anderson lose lose his shit a bit because he's so usually calm cool collected and he's a yeah. very monotone person and seeing him kind of lose a bit of himself was surprising but i'm not sure if that was it was almost kind of nice to see it in a sense that like it was at least when muzzin stepped up it, it was showing some emotion which is mm-hmm. something that that's uh, true as i just said we never get out of freddie anderson yeah yeah no it, it was that kind of it was that fight ottawa that that kind of garnered some kind of pushback and it, and it kind of pushed that like I can't remember when that fight exactly happened in the game, but that I would think have been it was at some point in the second period. So they would have been down yeah, still probably I, five one or five five. I think it was no, five two. Five one when that fight happened. Yeah. Yeah, five one or five two. And that just that showed that Brady Kachuk himself will drag this team back. Yeah. And I think it, it, Absolutely. it is moments like that that even when we saw when we had Wayne Simmons in the first game of the year when we were kind of being flustered by Montreal and Wayne Simmons drops the gloves and Dex Ben Sherratt, it's, it's those little moments that can kind of change the course of the game. And, and I'm not specifically saying that that moment was the game changer, but it, it, it gave a little bit of fire to a team that you were burying. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ottawa had nothing going for themselves. They couldn't even string a pass together. And then no. they were able to kind of get that fight and kind of galvanize the team through it. John Tavares makes an absolutely awful play, which there's no getting around it. That was a terrible pass, but okay, yep. fine. It's John Tavares, and you can give him one mulligan. But it, it, it was the concurrence of all of those kind of events happening together that allowed Toronto to just kind of lose its footing, and it just slid down the hill from that point. Yeah, and I think part of, you know, part of what's been glossed over in this run that Toronto's been on and, you know, run to the top of the NHL standings is the fact that we haven't actually seen, like Tavares has one regular five on five goal in what now 14 games, maybe 14, 14 games or 15 games. Like, you know, Marner and Matthews have been excellent and producing incredibly well, but that's it. You know, William Nylander, has been playing well, but not producing. And then, I mean, if you told me he was benched for the whole third period and OT, I wouldn't have been surprised if that was true because he didn't do anything significant. But even more so, I think Morgan Riley has had a real stutter. And I thought that was most evident in the fact that he made two uncharacteristically Morgan, uncharacteristic for Morgan Riley moves in OT, 
which cost the you know, ended up costing the Leafs game. And the first one was where Mano was confusing everyone and drawing all of the Ottawa Senators' def- uh, attention below the goal. And Mana gets off this pass to Riley. And if you look at the, if you watch the game tape back, Austin Matthews is there ready for the one-timer. And there's a hole in the net. Like all three senators are towards the right of the net, trying to stop the pass. Riley has the puck and all he needs is to hit it to Matthews, who is, you know, you're giving the puck to arguably one of the purest goal scorers in NHL history. And he will get that puck in the net off a one-timer with an open goal and no defense in front of him. Riley takes a really low percentage shot and then fluffs the defensive play. And yes, I know Mana trips in trying to get back, but Riley fluffs the defensive play, which gives Dadanoff, who blocked the shot, the chance to get away on the breakaway and then he scores. I think that's a bit harsh to look at all those set of events and, and putting it on Morgan Riley. I, th- I yeah, mean, Mitch he was Martin, involved they, in Mitch all Martin, Sure, but technically so was Mitch Marner and so was Austin Matthews. Like, it, like Mitch Marner danced around all those players and, and gave it to Morgan Riley. I wouldn't say that's a low percentage shot because the goaltender was out of it. Um, yeah, in hindsight, everyone looking on the outside can see that, yeah, probably should have sent it across to Matthews. But at yes. the time, you have we, – we all forget that you have less than a second to make that decision. And he had the yeah. puck, and he saw the goalie was out of the net, and he went and he, and he just tried to quickly get it on net, right? And it didn't work because imagine if he had scored, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Of course. Right? It would have been – yeah. If, if he had passed it across and Austin had missed it or the pass was off, you would have been like, why didn't you shoot? Why didn't you shoot? The fact that he did shoot and didn't go in is unfortunate, but that's just that's just the game of hockey. Now, yeah. the defensive play, that was – he was caught on a break. I mean, Austin wasn't – you know, he didn't get back fast enough. Mitch Marner wasn't back fast enough. He was just overwhelmed at that point. He had three senators at – Almost coming back yeah. after you. So, but this is I mean, but the point being all, is that you can nitpick those plays all day long, but I think the the sole focus that we're just going to try to get out of this conversation is that we never should have been in a in a do or in a, in a do or die situation in the first place. When you're when you're up five one on an opponent, you shouldn't have to then pick point one play at the end of the game and say, "Oh, this guy's been off." That's true. That's true. The Leafs shouldn't have been, shouldn't have gone to OT, but it did, and it's all Morgan Riley's fault. Burned down exactly. the team, traded all, and you might as well just relocate the team to Hamilton. What has been working in the Leafs' favor is, and this might sound controversial, is that they have been getting a lot of help by the fact that there is only one other really good team in the North division. And that's the Montreal Canadians. The rest of the North has been pretty underwhelming. Edmonton Oilers haven't played. Well, Edmonton only plays as well as the, you know, Connor McDavid Lee on dry side of show will take them. The Vancouver Canucks. We all, I mean, we said in our preview are a bit of a weird dark horse. They could play really well, but let's not forget how young so many, yeah, let's not forget how young so many players and so many crucial members of that team are. Calgary is even more of an enigma where we don't even know what kind of Calgary is going to turn up. And then, of course, you've got Winnipeg, who have one of the best goalies. But, you know, the point being, and then obviously the Ottawa Senators, but the point being is that the North Division has kind of helped the Leafs because it isn't very good. But... It shouldn't like. It sh- I don't think it should necessarily say that the Leafs aren't one of the NHL's best, but I think they're definitely helped by the fact that they're in the vacuum of the North Division, which is just playing teams that aren't playing as well. Yeah. Now, if last night had happened to uh, an Edmonton or a Montreal, I'd probably have a little more uh, understanding, I guess you could say, that you know maybe we just lost our to a team that had a lot of talent and they made us pay. I think the bad taste in our mouths is because we lost to a team with no talent. That's yeah. kind of really what bothers me. And that's kind of really as a fan, just as a general hockey fan, that you have to take a step back and, and try to 
analyze but not overanalyze that loss. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, you can look at the Leafs and and the way they've been playing, and a lot of people can look at them and they're at the top of the division, as you said, and a lot of people are now taking them a little more seriously as being NHL contenders, or sorry, NHL like cup contenders. I'm a bit I'm a bit more reserved when it comes to that because I haven't seen Toronto actually put it together yet. I I, have, I haven't watched a single game this season that I was actually no, no that's not true probably two games this season that I was actually floored and impressed. Yeah. At how well they played. In saying that, I think they've gotten their structure a lot more down. So I think the talent and the and the synergy between all their structures will come with time. But I'm not ready to call them like a Stanley Cup favorite, as Paul Bissonnette said today, or, or, or anything like that. So I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. And when you look at the rest of the North Division, I think it's as inconsistent as we thought it was at the start of the season. I mean, yeah. you're, you're going to have a lot of movement. We're both right when it comes to Ottawa's worse than what I think a lot of people thought they were going to be. And they've already kind of blown up their blow up. In the, in the sense that all the guys they kind of acquire, they're already trying to trade again, like Stefan and Paquette they, they sent away. And yeah, they traded Galchenyuk, which the Leafs now have, which we found a, a little a little funny because, you know, I'm a big yeah. Chucky fan and I hope he'll do that. I hope he'll give it, be given an opportunity in Toronto. But it's, we're, we're a significant amount into the season now where, where you can kind of start to see what the teams are made of teams will get a bit better as they kind of get more solidified but you can kind of see what the teams are now and we weren't wrong when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks like I was no. so dead right when I said they had absolutely no depth when in their scoring and yeah it was going to live and die by how far Lise Pedersen and JT Miller could take them and that that so far has been on point because their top end guys like Brock Besser's got 11 goals this season like the top end guys are producing at, at a really strong level. Pedersen probably needs to step it up an, another notch, but they have no depth, and so not surprised by that. Their de- their defense is probably the worst in the league, besides yep. Ottawa maybe. Uh, and their goaltending is now down to about a little below league average. But that was something that everyone forecasted as being. Like that's no surprise that their goaltending's taken a step down because that's the trade-off they made in order to protect Demko moving mm-hmm. forward from the expansion. So, so yeah, I think I think Winnipeg will get better when they get Luke Dubois actually playing. Absolutely, with that system like that's that's a massive player that they need back. Calgary's inconsistencies are coming down to their scoring depth, which not surprising there, but they're getting nope. the goaltending that everyone thought they were going to get. Edmonton is like you had an argument with some guy on Twitter, but you were absolutely right. Edmonton will live and die based on how far Leon and Connor will will take them. Their defense sucks. Their goaltending is... Koskinen is all right, but you can't play Koskinen every game. Like even Freddie Anderson has to take a night off and Koskinen isn't as good as Freddie Anderson, so he's not going to keep you afloat that much longer. Um, So like they're they're only going to go as far as those two guys kind of allow them. And, and, and Montreal is exactly what I thought they were going to be. They're a complete team. They're very structured. They're going to beat you down. They're going to play in all three zones. But they lack elite offensive talent. They don't have a game breaker. And that hasn't changed this year. Like, yeah. like that's one thing that they haven't really had is that guy who can t- take the game and do it himself. They haven't had to do that because they've kind of won by committee because that's how they're built. But I would say all the all the impressions I had going into the season, for the most part, have been proven accurate. And I don't think anyone's really surprised by the way the standings are kind of set at this point. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the Leafs traded for Alex Galchenyuk, who they picked up from Carolina for Korshkov and David Worowski, which was David Worowski's name, but no one, you know, who minor parts of the deal. Galchenyuk, okay. I think we can both agree on is a good guy to take a flyer on partly because who doesn't want to see Gauchenyuk succeed on his what will be his eighth NHL team um, but when the news broke there's also been a lot of news coming out of Toronto that the Leafs are looking for a top six forward and when I you texted me the news and I saw it on my phone I thought you know this can't possibly be 
the quote unquote top six guy that they're going for because I don't think anyone would call Galchenyuk a top six forward now, even though he was drafted third overall. So apparently, apparently, Mikel Granlund from the Preds is that guy who's that top six forward. Um, I think, I know you don't, I know you think it's going to be someone else. So I'll let you say that bit. I think if it is Granlund, it's, you know, it's a really nice complimentary piece if he plays i mean obviously if he plays well um even but you know he's a nice complimentary piece even though he isn't really a free scoring winger now i know he has been at times but i think you know they're looking for someone to play probably more on that tavares nylander line than the matthews mana line because they like joe thornton there and they like hyman on that line too but the leafs also kind of lack since they traded away Janssen, they traded away Kapanen and to a lesser extent, Connor Brown a little while ago, but they've kind of lacked that complimentary wing player who isn't necessarily a game breaker because they've got the four guys who are the game breakers, but they don't really have that wing piece. Like Jimmy VC has not done what we expected. Ilya Makayev has played well, but isn't really producing. And that's kind of, it. like Nick Robertson I don't think is is NHL ready at this point to do the role that Leafs need him to do or need that top six forward so that's my pitch that you know it makes sense for Granlund because Nashville isn't really in the hunt they're not in the division and they're in that kind of like half rebuild half stagger on mindset so they're looking for futures and he's cost effective yeah do you want me to chime in now sure that was my little um, Michael Granlund hard affection. Okay, so that was, that was a transition. Uh, I'll talk about the Galchenyuk thing first. Yeah, under no avails did anyone think that the Galchenyuk trade was was the top six forward that everyone was rumored that the Leafs were looking at. That that's not it. Galchenyuk is is a buy low option. Who's a guy who has more talent than most of the guys in the bottom six of the Leafs. I yep. mean, what if Joe Thornton gets hurt again? What if, you know, God forsaken, uh, uh, Mitch Marner or William Nylander gets hurt? You do need talent to play up in the lineup because um, you don't want to elevate too many guys and you don't want to tinker too much with the bottom six of your lineup uh, in the sense that you don't want to move guys too far out of their position and out of their depth. So Galchenik is... It, He's a guy who can play with talent, and maybe if he's given an opportunity to play with Tavares and Nylander, I mean, you call me crazy, but I think he could actually have some value for this team, and especially go in the amount of games that they're going to have to play, and the playoffs are pretty much what the Leafs are kind of focused on solely. Gelchen, yep. You're just going to need depth. So I don't think there's any, any harm in trading a kid who's going to probably stay in Russia for the rest of his career and an AHL defenseman who was acquired in the cap and deal for a flyer on a guy who has contract mobility now because he he has the ability to be sent to the taxi squad without having to pass through waivers again. And it gets another contract off our books. So we don't have, so we have an extra contract that if we want to go out and acquire someone, we're not over the, over the contract limit. When shifting a bit, when, when the names of, or when, the news broke that the Leafs are going to kind of look for a top six winger. I kind of texted you two names that I thought would kind of make sense. Um, and, and we'll talk about them quickly. And those were Kyle Palmieri and Ricard Raquel. Yes. I think those guys made a little more sense than Mikhail Granlin. One, because honestly, I didn't think of Mikhail Granlin. If, if we're being honest, I didn't really consider him because he was, he was available in free agency and he was never connected to the Leafs. Um, like he's never been connected to the Leafs in the past. And I, I get, he's got talent and he can play in your top six, but yeah, I wouldn't be mad at, at mad at acquiring Mikael Granlin, but I just thought from a cost efficiency perspective, Ricard Raquel made a lot of sense because he's got an extra year on his contract at 3.7 or 3.8, something like that. And the Leafs are going to have, an opportunity to protect a few forwards in the expansion draft mm-hmm. um, because I don't think they're going to do the four and four. I think they're going to, you know, do the seven and three. 
because that, that you're, you're just going to want to protect more more players, right? So I think Ricardo Kell made a lot of sense. He's a guy who can play in your top six. He's got a lot of talent. The acquisition cost is going to be higher for getting him than the Mikhail Granlin, but you also get an extra year of control. And the Cal Paul Mary was just because I think he's going to get traded. And he's the top six forward who can kind of easily slot into your second line with William Elander and John Tavares and produce. Yeah. Well, so that was kind interesting. of my thought process in those guys. Yeah, I think what's interesting about all of them is that they all play for teams in America, which, as we've seen with Pierre-Luc Dubois, means that they have to undergrow. They, you know, they won't be as soon as the trade goes through and they arrive. You know, really, you're talking about like a a sixteen day, fifteen day swing, really, maybe fourteen days, depending on which team they're in uh, and, and where the team is in the in the u.s because they have to go through quarantine and and stay there so the leafs have to get the deals done before the trade deadline because the trade deadline in the playoffs are so close that getting waiting up until the deadline would mean that the guy has you know as we talked about a couple games if that before the playoffs actually kick off and that would be not ideal now as we talked about the leafs are one of the best teams in the NHL and it does seem kind of weird to say that we're going to talk about the other best teams in the NHL starting with the Boston Bruins and we're going to work our way across what do you think has made the Bruins so good this year so far I don't know and that's the problem that was (laughs) my answer that was my answer I have no idea but like they're chugging along somehow really well yeah, they're chugging along. I thought their defense was going to take a step back. Yep. It has in a sense, but not enough to affect them. Uh, Pasternak came back quicker than I expected. I thought he was going to miss more time. Pasternak's already back, and he's probably already got 10 goals at this point. I mean, their, their top guys aren't slowing down. They have an incredible amount of forward depth, to be fair. like I, yes. We kind of knew that going into the season, but Craig Smith was a really nice add. <sighs> Yeah, and they, have, and they really can roll four lines at you, and they can play a really strong two-way game. And get it, and they're spreading it out on the defensive end. But yeah, I don't have an easy answer to to say why Boston is still good. But I guess that's just the Boston way. Boston, they just are. just find a way to just not go away. Yeah, and I think it's the same vibes are coming out of Tampa Bay. Like it's it's uh, a collective of the team like the you know i know that they don't have nikita kucherov but they are still producing you know headman is playing well stamkos is playing well tyler johnson who could still be traded could still go anywhere is playing well like you know andre palat is having another good year there are you know chirelli is having apart from me just got injured but you know there are so many players on that Tampa team and I know we've talked about how they they're probably playing in the easiest division because of how much better they are than their competition but I think they're playing so incredibly well they have that same scoring depth and that's all still without Kucherov it's all without Kucherov and and they'll have Kucherov back for the playoffs it sounds like so that's that's going to be fun for everybody but I would like, yeah, Tampa Bay is, is the definition of doing it by committee. Um, yeah. Because I think their top point getter is Point, who's got like 16 points. Uh, and Stamkos, I think, has 15. But it, like, it's just, again, they come at you at waves, right? And and everyone knew that they were the most well built team, to be honest. <laughs> like, that was no surprise. But absolutely. I mean, they're getting elite goaltending from Bashilevsky. I mean, he's probably the favorite at this point for the Vesna. Yeah, and their, I think so. And their ability to kind of just it's getting Stamkos back was huge, right? Stamkos is healthy and firing, and it pretty much supplemented the loss completely of what you what you don't get out of out of Kucherov, right? So, uh, yeah, for all these top teams, Tampa Bay, I'm not surprised by. I, I I'm I'm a bit surprised that Florida's given a run, kind of for their money. Mm-hmm. Um, Florida's got a lot more depth than I think what a lot of people were were, were giving them credit for. Yeah. Um, so that will be that will be kind of the interesting kind of play in in, in that division. 
Well, I think it's that Florida's kind of playing without any of those expectations that's kind of freed them up and allowed them to play a little more of a fast and loose, relaxed hockey, which is just working out for them. Whereas the Golden Knights, who are the best in the West, aren't playing fast and loose hockey. They're just playing really good, effective shutdown hockey. And I think, I mean, it's helped that they've been getting excellent goaltending from Marc-Andre Fleury and Rob has been chipping in. And you say chipping in because Fleury has really been stealing the show the last couple games, but we knew they were going to be good. I don't know if we kind of thought they were going to be this good because I think we kind of worked on the fact that the Avs were probably the best team there, but I think the Golden Knights have, they haven't surprised everyone, but they've kind of surprised us in the fact that they're actually looking like a better team than the Avalanche. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But at this point. Yeah, so okay, yeah, yeah, of course. The the Golden Knights, I think one of the biggest question marks going into the season was their depth at center. And I think a lot of people looked at kind of their inability to kind of roll out a one through three that could really compete with a lot of the other top teams. We all know they have, you know, William Carlson and he's great. There was a lot of question marks surrounding Cody Glass, but I don't think mm-hmm. anyone expected Chandler Stevenson to do what he's kind of done on that first line with Patch Reddy and, and Stone. Absolutely. So that not. really allowed them to kind of take a step back and kind of spread the love, I guess. And, and I guess that would be the common trend among all good teams in the NHL is that you really need to roll four lines at everybody because mm-hmm. with the condensed schedule, you can't just rely on one line to get it all done. And Boston is as good as that first line is. They have an ability to come at you with, with three other lines. And I would say that would be Toronto's biggest sticking point is that they are solely at this point fueled by two players. Yes. And, and, and and it's, it's working for right now. And yes, I get that John Tavares is a point per game player and and Nylander's got, you know, 12 points in 16 games. I I get that. Mm -hmm. But, but when you actually watch the games, the only guys actually creating scoring opportunities in, in kind of the amount that they're going to need to actually create something is Matthews and Marner. And like anything, we know that we're going to need to, at some point, get some debt balance scoring. And that's something that hasn't happened for the Avalanche, but I suspect will. The Avalanche, to be fair, I think you're just in a little bit of a dip at this moment, but I think they're going to, they're going to come back. And that's not just because I picked them for the cup and I'm kind of married to that <laughs> pick now. And so I'm going to back them no matter what, but I think yeah, we're 16, 17 games into the season. The identities of these teams are kind of taking form but I think there's still some shuffling at the top end because I don't think Arizona is going to finish third in that division, especially ahead of like Colorado. Like that's, that's call me crazy, but I don't think that's going to be the end result. Right. And yeah. the blues have, have gone on a, you know, a 10 game stretch where they look like the best team in the league and now they're really struggling. Right. Yep. So there, there's going to be ebbs and flows to all this. So I, I think Vegas will come back down to earth a bit. Because, you know, Flurry's not going to have a 940 save percentage the whole season, right? No. At some point, you're going to have to meet in the middle. But Leonard's going to have to be better than an 880 or an 890 or whatever he has right now. So I'm not, I'm not blowing kind of anything out of proportion other than the identities are starting to take shape. And, and nothing has surprised me so far this season, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because... At other points, I know the lead, the season's condensed, but at other points, you know, we wouldn't be talking about this 16 games into the season. I know, you know, 82 games is completely different from what, the 52 or something they're playing. But, you know, 16 games, we've really seen teams, as you said, set out who they are and the way, the way they play, how they play, all of these different kind of things pretty early on. And that's just making, I think, the NHL more exciting. And another way the NHL is trying to make itself more exciting is that they're putting on two outdoor hockey games this year 
kind of in lieu of the winter classic and the heritage classic and this and that um and that is that four teams are going to descend onto a golf course on the shores of lake tahoe to play beside a lake now we were talking beforehand how exciting and how much better it would be if they were playing on the lake logistical nightmares insurance logistical issues aside that would be epic if they actually played a game on the lake like you couldn't you couldn't beat that unless they were playing on uh playing in Banff because the views would be better but not to i mean we would talk a tiny bit about this this nhl lake tahoe event um, because it's the Golden Knights and the Avalanche playing on Saturday and then the Bruins and Flyers playing on Sunday. So who do you think will win uh, Golden Knights, Avalanche? What, what was their game the other night? It was one nothing. <laughs> yeah, one one nothing Vegas. Yeah, like it's going to be a close game. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take Vegas at this point just because they're in better form. Yeah. Um, but... If this was if this game was probably three weeks from now, I would have taken Colorado. So, and I'm not sure if if, if Landeskog will be back in time for this game. So, I'll I'll take Vegas as of right now. But that's just I'm, that's more out of recency bias than anything. Yeah, I'm gonna pick Vegas too. And in the Bruins Flies game, who do you have? Uh, I'm gonna pick the Bruins. So. F- Ultimately, hopefully, the hockey gods will allow the Philadelphia Flyers to win. So I'm picking the Bruins in hope yeah. that they lose. Yeah, I think I think the Flyers are going to win because the Flyers love to steal a show, and the mostly just because the prospect of watching Gritty do whatever Gritty is going to do on Lake Tahoe in the build up to this and the game is going to be worth its weight in. I was going to say worth its weight in gold, but then I'm thinking like worth its weight in Cheeto like dust, because that's kind of just what he is as a Cheeto ball. Um, I think, I think the, the pro, I mean, it's different because outdoor games we've seen have kind of slowed down the tent. It's not really great hockey. It's more for the spectacle, but who cares? You know, it's going to be a good thing to watch, but what it made me think of was do you think this kind of spectacle could work for other leagues? Like, could the NBA have a game played on a location? Obviously not in the winter. They would do it somewhere warm in the summer and play basketball. But do you think the NBA could have a game like this? Or do you think, you know, baseball could genuinely do like a field of dreams kind of thing in the middle of, you know, God knows where Iowa do you think that's possible for the other leagues and other types of sport? Or do you think the NHL is kind of exclusive in the fact that they can take their sport from where it should be to somewhere it isn't and play it there? I think it could work for other sports because like, of course, like if there's a, if it's a big enough spectacle, anyone will kind of tune in to watch. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the field of dreams thing, like, I mean, if, if you were to move, baseball fans don't really care where they're watching the game to be honest like you could yeah. you could pretty much play baseball anywhere and people are going to love it you know baseball fans aren't as picky as, as other sports but uh, yeah, yeah i feel the dreams would be kind of cool and let, yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> yeah but my first thought actually was was almost uh, almost like a, like a basketball game in the middle of just a massive football stadium and you put the court down and down below and you just have, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 fans there. And, and that to me, I think would translate because if you could have, you know, a Lakers versus Celtics outdoor game hosted at the Coliseum or, yeah. or somewhere like that, I, I think there would be diff, definite crowds because anytime you're going to have the problem with the NHL ones is, is, the fact that there's so many of them now they've lost their luster to me like exactly i, I, like I just yeah. i don't care to watch any of them anymore it used to be kind of one classic a year it was new year's uh new year's day the first of the yeah. year and it was something special now there's like you know four or five games a year obviously this year doesn't count because of because of corona and all that but it just started to lose its luster but I think anytime you take something that's so set and finite, like the way the game has to be played indoors in an arena, 
and you and, and you make a spectacle out of it, I think the fans will show up. So I think this would translate into a basketball game or or or, or, a, or a baseball any any kind of thing where you can kind of create. You're you're just taking fans out of out of kind of the the run of the mill kind of way the thing is run and kind of breaking it down to its earliest roots, whether that be baseball in the field of dreams and just the love of the game, or if you're kind of creating the spectacle of like a Celtics Lakers game, like yeah, like there's some there's some matchups that you can make that that would kind of bring the love of the game back and love of kind of the spectacle of what you can make it. Yeah, the I mean the NHL's issue was that the first Winter Classics just made so much money for them because it was kind of that one thing where no one else was doing it. So they're like, wow, this is a gold mine. And they have definitely, as you said, the luster is kind of, you know, it's just not as exciting. It's it's just a bit bland because you think, oh, I'm not gonna watch the Winter Classic, I'll watch the Heritage Classic. Oh, I'm not gonna watch that, I'm just gonna watch the outdoor stadium series. Like it's just not as exciting that hasn't yeah it just it just hasn't really it hasn't really worked for me although i was trying to think of what other sports outside of the nba and baseball what other sports could be a big kind of venue or something and i was like could you do football in the desert or could you do and I was thinking like, oh, wait, it's literally everything else. Like, what else are you going to do that people would care about? You know, you could take lacrosse and put it somewhere like lacrosse on a floating platform. And I was like, ah, you know, it's not really going to work, but it would be epic. But it's not going to happen because no one cares. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you, can, you can always find like amazing locations. Like if you were to have like, I, I can't remember what, what it's called, but in Tokyo, there's that football pitch. Mm-hmm. downtown on top of that building yeah like if you could have i know it's not like a full-size pitch it's it's more of like a pickup game pitch but if you could have like like obviously this is never gonna happen but if you could have like a fun game between you know neymar and some of the world's biggest stars like there's like a real fifa street there. yeah like, like like i can't remember who i can't remember who played the tennis match in dubai on that helicopter pad yeah uh, on that yeah, yeah, yeah. Ho- hotel but i think that was agassi and oh i can't remember i thought I, th- I thought it was andre agassi against someone but like that like, could have been like was... Ag- Ag- yeah agassi sampress or something yeah maybe it was maybe. Ronick, maybe i can't i can't remember but like it, like it's it's obviously we're getting away a bit from kind of the outdoor <laughs> outdoor stadium talk a bit but it's it's kind of cool to kind of see things that you've never kind of seen before and I and I can't remember there was it was it was more locally here that here in Vancouver I think a YouTuber or an Instagrammer brought up a bunch of the Canucks and they played on a pond up in the middle of the mountains mm-hmm. and that was and they kind of posted that on on whatever it would have been YouTube or, or on his Instagram or something like that but like, like that was kind of really cool to see is yeah. to kind of play is see those professional hockey guys out on the out on the pond and just having fun so i know that's that's like the dream you know you can get li- like a lake louise nhl hockey game would be um unbelievable to watch i who knows it's you know as we mentioned with the prospect of like playing an nhl game on a lake rather you know it's it's difficult but it would be epic to see now one thing that we've come used to seeing, but the players didn't think they would see was an NBA all-star game. And it's thrown up a lot of heat for the NBA because people like, you know, LeBron James, that old guy, people like LeBron James have come up and said, well, I'll just quote him here. I have it here. He said, uh, he told reporters, I have zero energy and zero excitement about an all-star game this year. I don't even understand why we're having an all-star game. So he then went on to point out that the offseason was shorter, that players were then under the impression there would be a break in the middle of the season to help recover before the playoffs. And he said, and then they throw an all-star game on us like this and just breaks that all the way up. So um, pretty much... Uh, pretty much kind of a slap in the face 
and Giannis Antetokounmpo did, said the same kind of stuff, uh, talking about how the NA, uh, the M- NBA players thought that they would be getting you know, five or seven days off. It's creating a lot of issues, and the NBA have released the um, kind of guidelines, the COVID guidelines for the game, which is happening in Atlanta because it was supposed to be happening in Indianapolis, and now it's in Atlanta, and they've basically said that they can have a couple family members there, but you can't leave the hotel for anything other than COVID, uh, anything other than COVID, anything other than NBA all-star game events. And I don't know. I mean, I know that you think it's kind of ridiculous, but I could also hasten to say that you just think it's more than just kind of ridiculous. What do you think? I don't agree with LeBron James on pretty much anything. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm going to agree with him on that. Like, to me, the fact that they're having an all-star game is just so tone deaf to the yep. situation that it is at hand. Like, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm usually a big proponent in supporting kind of the leagues in the sense that I think the NBA players complain a lot. But here, I actually 100% stand with them because I think it's, as I just said, completely tone deaf to kind of the situation. I think the fact that they're even playing basketball is kind of, it's a nice thing for fans to have. And it's, it's kind of a a little bit of escapism in a society and in a world right now that we could really use it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is just my point of view, but I don't think any any NBA fan is like, you know what I really want to see right now? An all-star game. No. You know what I really want to see right now is an all-star is an all-star skills competition. I don't yeah. think anybody cares. I think the only thing NBA fans care about right now is their team. And yeah. so I think the fact that they're going to force these guys to go and you know go to Atlanta, break their current bubbles, have a certain family with them, only leave their room for literally the game and yeah. maybe food. It just it it to me, it's 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 asking too much when you're when these guys are already kind of doing you a favor and kind of agreed to come back. I get that they're Absolutely. highly compensated and all that. Yeah, but I don't. I I just I think marketing wise, it might make them some money. I get that the All Star Game probably is a big driver in that. But to me, yeah. the overarching problem, as I said, I think it's just a little tone deaf in in the sense that you're going to try to get these guys to come together from all across the States. Yeah. Travel right now really isn't suggested. It's kind of frowned upon, right? Whether you're in Canada, whether you're in the U S they don't really want you kind of going state to state freely. So I think bringing all these guys, all these, all these people's families to Atlanta to play a game that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm is just a little tone deaf to me, but that's just my perspective. I think, I think you're spot on, you know, it's, you talk about just based on the, the theory of COVID and the spread anyway, and you're looking at bringing 30, you know, really you're looking at bringing to put all this event on, you're bringing 50 different people who were in 50 different bubbles with 50 different connections all into one. So that in and of itself is just a bit tone deaf because not only could that, raise like not only is that stupid just from a health perspective at this point but also you think you know if one or two of these guys gets covid then you're effectively giving every all-star so all of the best players in the league covid and, and sitting them under the covid protocol in the nba so that's just ridiculous in in any respect but also i think the nba is usually the best commit like the commission without silver like the league is usually furthest ahead of the curve and understanding what are probably the best things to do at the time whereas you know we know the nhl is really lacking and slow the nfl doesn't like change the mlb is just a bit of a uh shit show the nba has always done kind of the best thing or been the best run and i think i totally agree it's totally tone deaf they've missed the mark but also the nba all-star game was always the best of all of the all-star games like the nba skills competition was fine but you know everyone loved the three-point contest everyone loved the dunk contest and 
they're threatening that now because like I think it was LeBron who said I'll be there physically but I won't be there mentally and you just think you've got the biggest star in your game right now who is saying effectively he doesn't want to be there and you're making a catalog of errors trying to force this to go through in a year where you don't actually need it and as you said no one actually cares about it it's not like in a normal NBA season where you're like oh let's just take a little break and then we'll reboot for the playoffs no that's not what this season is and I think the NBA is absolutely just beggars belief that they're trying to push this through yeah because like like at least like MLB all-star games had an effect on the season Mm-hmm. Right, because it, it was it was whoever won the All Star game got home field advantage, yeah, for the World Series, like, which is such a smart be... smart idea to make it worthwhile for people and players to tune in and turn up. Yeah, like it actually like it actually made a difference. But I, I think out of all the years that you could have just been like, you know what, we're already we already started so late in the year, we're already going to push it up so late. These guys didn't have a lot of rest. There just yeah, there seemed to be no purpose to it. So yeah, well, we are going to move on to a new segment, which is the debate segment, the mass debate segment. See what I did there? Definitely gonna have to edit that bit out. Um, anywho. We're going to talk about the GOAT-GOAT debate this week because it's once again come up since Tom Brady won his seventh Super Bowl ring in devastating fashion, which we at the Halftime Brewski's podcast clearly overlooked that Brady would annihilate the Chiefs in the way they did, although you did put the point of saying don't bet against Brady. Anyway, side point. The whole debate came up because Brady won the game and you know social media was rife with things like oh brady's the goat goat over jordan now because he has seven rings to jordan six and you'll have to buckle in for a second folks because i'm about to go on a teeny weeny rant um which is the first issue i have with this goat goat status is i don't think a goat goat status should be attributed to only people who've won like i think there are so many players who are phenomenal players and are freaks of nature blah 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 who didn't necessarily win everything and just because they didn't win everything doesn't mean they should be excluded case in point Messi or Ronaldo neither have won a world cup but you cannot argue that they aren't contenders for goat goat because of how they've done and this brings it in uh, how they've done for their sport and this brings me to the bigger issue I have which was assigning the goat goat status to a sport that so few people play like Brady won like for me he could never be the goat goat because he plays a sport that a one country plays that is not goat goat status because 50 million people okay sure we'll give it the NHL 100 million people love the sport that's not goat goat status when you talk about sports like soccer which have worldwide appeal and Messi and Ronaldo or hell you know you talk about I mean, you could, it doesn't even work with Jordan because, you know, football is one country. Basketball is, you know, what? You could count the number of countries that play legitimate basketball on two hands. Like that, that you cannot have a player, no matter how good they are, be the goat goat for a sport that does not get played around the world. Like, well, it, was, it, was that fun, it was that funny thing and it came out, it comes out every year during the Super Bowl, but every, every time that, it, it's well it was the 100 you know 110 million people watched the super bowl and this is the biggest of this is the biggest sports event and then yeah. the numbers on how many people watch the world cup come out and it's over a billion people yeah and it just and it just it, and it's, it's such an american thing that it's just oh i've, I've got it, it oh my it's, god it's, I it, know. it's it, it was that <sighs> meme that came out where it's like people who think brady is the goat goat of the world and it's just like a picture of america because that's all they yeah. think of because God forbid, because, because granted, look, football is huge in the States and, and, and all that. But like this, this idea of the goat goat one, I hate it because I hate comparing people cross sport wise. I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
and yep. chew. It's just so American to only look at it and be like, oh my God. These are the I only know. two guys that are ever going to be considered for the greatest athlete of all time. It's, I have, I mean, in, I have in my notes, just to interrupt, I have in my notes, in caps, it reeks of American arrogance. It's stupid and it reeks of American arrogance. Like, it's, uh, anyway, sorry, carry on. And, and I mean, like, you're also selling short. It, it, it's, it's a lot of different to win in different sports. Yes. So I actually attribute winning in NBA. Yeah, you have to have rings to ever be considered a great one. 100% get it. There are great football players who only won one, maybe two Super Bowls, right? Yep. When you look at the NHL, I would say it's a lot harder to win multiple Stanley Cups than it is to win multiple Super Bowls. Agreed. Now, th- now that might be the, you know, the most controversial thing I've said on this podcast, <laughs> but whatever. But like that, that, that's the thing that I'm going to say. Like if, if you're going to say, oh, Tom Brady's the goat goat over Michael Jordan. Well, I mean, Wayne Gretzky's point record, I don't think will ever be beaten. I think it's honest to God at this point, impossible to beat his point record. He's got four Stanley Cups in a, in a sport that's harder to win. So why are we not considering him one of the goat goat athletes of all time? Babe Ruth's got seven World Series. You know how hard it is to win a World Series? Now, to be grant, to be fair, this was you know back in the back in the early days where there was not a lot yeah. of teams. But still, granted, like it, it's it's so hard to compare players that didn't play at the same time and didn't even play the same sport. And then to your point, like I mean, Messi and Ronaldo have pretty much won everything personally, yes. besides yeah. the World Cup. I, and Messi's won a little less when it comes to the team sports because Ronaldo won the Euro, so that you know you gotta give him credit there. But yeah, the, the goat goat debate in my mind, I just roll my eyes because I think it's stupid. Well, that's good for me because I have a whole spiel on who I think is the goat goat, so I can just go off. But like one thing that I didn't think of was it's like the fact that the baseball is called the World Series when how many team how many countries is baseball a a prominent sport eight like you're talking about the uh, you know latin america and the u.s and then if you want to extend it and you have it in japan that's where like, yeah yeah so so we're talking you know anyway that's 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 one thing more countries than football though <laughs> more countries than football i just the fact it drives me insane when you talk about Brady being the goat goat because he has seven rings just stupid um I did see a stat recently which would lead to Messi being one considered as the goat goat because they talked about who had scored the most goals against Premier League clubs and it was like first was Jamie Vardy and like it went through number four on the everyone on the list had played in the Premier League and that's why they were on this list number four on that list was Messi and he'd never he's never played in the Premier League and he is the fourth highest goal scorer Just against Premier League, League clubs like literally through the Champions Just League Champions like League. and and the European Super Cup when an like a English team would play against Barcelona and get slaughtered now back to me and my argument about the goat goat so now that we've dispelled the fact that Jordan and Brady can't do it because the sports have to be universal i think you could probably if you wanted to you could make the argument for tiger woods or roger federer or michael phelps you know lewis hamilton or someone like usain bolt like all of these guys you could probably make the argument that they're up there of some of the greatest of all time in their respective sports They've won a shit ton of accolades. You know, they've got broke, they've broken records. They've been unbeatable at certain stages in their career. But I think if you're actually going to have the goat goat discussion, you have to look at who has been completely dominant or the most dominant over their respective sport in history. Like, you know, and I know you don't like comparing players who are in different eras and that is stupid directly but for the argument's sake i'm gonna do it so like let's look at tiger woods of course there's jack nicholas that you know he's also woods has also faced people like phil mickelson you know more recently it's dustin johnson rory McIlroy, jordan spieth like all of these guys have been dominant at certain points so woods 
out the door for me. Let's talk about maybe Roger Federer. Guy's got some ridiculous records. He's got a win-loss record of 1,242 wins to 271 losses. That's unfucking believable. He's got 103 titles. Unfucking believable. But he's also been playing against people like Nadal. He's been playing against Nova, Novak Djokovic. And those guys could also lay claim to the fact that they've been a really dominant factor in tennis. Like uh, Djokovic has got something like 900 wins, Nadal's got 1,000, blah, blah, blah. But then you've also got people like Pete Sampras, Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe. Not dominant. Can't say it. Hamilton, he's won seven world championships, but you know, then you've got Schumacher, Senna, Jim Clark, blah, 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 blah. All of these people who have been dominant at a certain point, Hamilton is out. You want to talk football with Messi and Ronaldo, you've got Pele, you've got Zidane, you've got Maradona, Johan Cruyff, whoever you want. You can't really make a bet that they have been the most dominant in their sport, which brings us to the only person who has is synonymous with the sport they play and has been almost utterly dominant throughout sports history, and that is Serena Williams. That's right. Jaws that, hit the floor. Am I, am I just, yeah, Serena Williams, second to none. Like, I mean, no female tennis player can even come close to what she's been able to do. No. So I, I agree that she's, you know, yeah, the, the greatest, Since, probably, probably the greatest tennis player ever. Yeah. So, it, it, since when, I, when you really come down to it, in the sense of just their overall prowess, dominance, and, and dominance, and, and how they played for sure, hundred percent. But I mean, now, John Jones, like, I mean, if you're gonna start with John Jones and fighting, like, like no one's ever, no one, no one's ever actually taken him and actually beat him up. No. Now, that, to be fair, he's he's got his own demons, but to yes. be fair. He's probably one of the most physically gifted human beings ever born. Correct. Like that's just that's just a fact, right? So again, this goat goat debate, stupid. Um, yeah, it, it, it'll die down because it was just it was kind of after that Super Bowl kind of thing. And yep. I don't really know how you can look at, you know, Jordan being the guy because I mean, even Jordan ha- doesn't have full reign because people link LeBron and Jordan the entire time. So it, I, well, as they should, though, because they are the two, you know, along with Kobe, you talk about three of the greatest basketball players ever. But then it's like, oh, what about Wilt Chamberlain? Well, you know, yeah, completely, yeah, but Kobe, a completely different way. Kobe's top three, but Kobe's top ten. I think Kobe. Um, oh, that's controversial. People will not like that. I agree. People will not like that. I think people are blowing. Look, Kobe was the closest thing that we've had to Jordan. Correct. But I don't think he's. Um, I don't think he, he'll be considered as the greatest basketball ever, but no, I agree. player ever. But look, that that's neither here nor there. I'm just over the kind of comparing players who don't play the same sport. Yeah. So, so that's I already why... find it hard enough to compare players who do play the same sport who just don't play at the same time. Because I mean, yeah. you could make a case that Connor McDavid is the most talented player to ever hit the ice. Mm-hmm. Talent-wise, Connor McDavid might be the fastest skater in human history. But like no, but like no one's ever gonna start. You can never compare. You can maybe compare Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby when they finished because they played, you know, many years at the same time. But you're never gonna be able to compare Connor McDavid and, and Wayne Gretzky truly, right? So no, yeah, the no. Go, go debate will die down. But I'm sure you know if if Tom Brady gets another gets another ring or or if uh, or if LeBron gets another ring that the goat goat debate which is whatever will yeah. we'll hype back up well since i did the stats and the research today because i had a little else to do on serena williams i'm gonna bore everyone with a couple of her stats because they're unbelievable so she has 23 grand slam titles unbelievable she finished the year number one in the world five times since 1997 when she first made her debut on the pro tour and she has been at number one 10 different times between 2007 and 2017 her lowest rank over the course of the year was fifth in the world and during that span of 10 years she was at number one at some point 
in a year eight times in those 10 years. And only three times in that 10 year span did her year end ranking finish outside of the top four. I'm just going to pick 2013. It was one of her most dominant years where she was number one pretty much throughout the year. So she started 2013 on a nine match win streak before losing in the final of the Australian Open. Starting March 19th, 2013, she went on a 34 match win streak. 34 across a ton of different opens. She had one loss in a round of 16 game before then recording 14 straight wins where she then lost a tiebreak in the final of the Western and Southern Open before finishing the year on an 18-match win streak. Like, she's just... There's... Between 2013-2015, she had a total of 1,430 aces. The next closest person had 1,140. Like, the goat-goat debate is done because it's Serena. And that is the only point. Yeah, no, like, there's no no doubt that she's... uh she was dominant and and it's you know yeah there's not so, really much more i can say because it's it's obvious then the only uh, the only question i'll put to you then is if we wanted to compare two players who played in the same year at the same time where do you fall on the crosby ovechkin debate since they played they were drafted one year outside of each other played the same sport the same time against each other a lot who do you have as falling down as the better player? Crosby. Yeah, easily. Thank God. We had, we had that was, I didn't think that was going to be long, but there you go. Well, Vetchkin, much better goal scorer. Like, mm-hmm. like he's one of the most talented goal scorers in NHL history. But like, I mean, Crosby at the end of the day, I think will go down as top five NHL player of all time. Like, I think he's yeah. still on that trajectory of being beside, you know, when you really look at it, it's, you know, Corey Howe, Bobby Orr, Mario Lemieux, Wayne Gretzky, and I think it'll be Sidney Crosby. I think that's kind of the ordering of how you can kind of look at it. You didn't not, have... Not, not in specific order, but those guys. Yeah. Well, you you didn't have someone like Dave Boland in there, so that's probably a mark against you. Yeah. That, was a, those... shot at Dave, that was a shot at Dave Boland. What did he ever do to deserve that? He played 16 games in Toronto, played well, made a big deal about wanting to come to Toronto and said, it's not about the money. I want to be back in the city and then rejected the deal Toronto offered him to sign for a bigger deal in Florida. Yeah. Well, that was, thank God, because he was absolute oh, yeah. trash. <laughs> thank God. So I think, I think the Leafs got the last laugh on that. We did. And speaking of the last laugh, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Halftime Brewskies podcast. We are going to sign off with a little more of our Latin music to play us out. James, the last word is to you before I click play and we get played out. No, no final word here. (laughs) Just enjoy. No final word. Oh, well, I just took the last word. So now I have to offer it to you again. And then I'm just going to just going to cut it again. So, oh, see, you know what? It's over. Points done. (laughs) Points. This is the worst ending we've had. Thank God there's music to play us off. See you next week, please.